Thanks for listening to the Frontiers podcast. If you have a moment before we start, please rate and follow this podcast. It makes a huge difference. The more of you that do this, the more people get to listen. And the more people that get to listen, the bigger platform I'm building for academics to share their research. Thanks so much. Hi there. You're listening to Frontiers, the podcast that explores cutting-edge research from the world's best scientists. I'm Ian Hallett, and in each episode, I interview professors, doctors, and research scientists who are leading authorities in technology, economics, business, politics, the environment, and sociology, so we can learn about the scientific breakthroughs that will redefine our world. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Gordon McGranahan, who is an urban development research scientist with a particular specialism in urbanization. Gordon's worked with the World Bank, the Brookhaven National Laboratory, and Stockholm Environmental Institute. The discussion with Gordon and I talks about urbanisation and its history and its future developments, but also with a particular focus on what is called low elevation deltas. And these are urban areas where more than 300 million people live around the world, but actually they're living in areas that are at or close to sea level and therefore at significant risk of climate change and extreme weather events. It's a really interesting discussion. Do stick with it. We get into quite a lot of technical information, but it's actually when you get to the end, it's a really, really interesting and insightful conversation. So please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Gordon McGranahan. Let's start right at the top. Your research is focused on urbanization and urban development. Just so we can frame the conversation for everybody, could you explain what is meant by urbanization? And then later we'll delve into why it happens. Okay, well, I guess basic answer would be a country's urbanizing when a growing share of its population is living in urban areas and these urban areas are themselves becoming increasingly urban its towns becoming cities things like that but so i guess the key question is what's an urban area and i think an odd thing is i mean most people could take a five-minute walk around a neighborhood and and make a guess that well, this is urban, this is rural, this is somewhere something in between. It, it, most people have an intuitive feel of that, but you get with some experts together, you get much less agreement. It clearly, has something to do with the concentration of people in buildings, and many would argue that it also has to do with a way of life, different way of life, presence of big facilities, entertainment facilities, religious buildings, government offices pipe networks, all those sorts of things. And some people sometimes use that to define what is urban, what is urbanization. But another way of seeing it is to say, well, those are really things that are made possible by the concentrations of people. You need a lot of people in buildings to be able to support those types of things. And that's what partly creates the different, um, creates what you, what you end up calling urban. I, I think from us, in terms of the research Another question is, well, what are the criteria that are used to define urban statistics? Because we also don't have data on all of those things, particularly if you want to do internationally comparable definitions of urban. And it used to be, it wasn't all that long ago that we all relied on countries' own definitions of rural and urban. And so countries had very different definitions. They used different size criteria, or they used different criteria altogether, lots of differences. So there's a lot of concern about that by researchers. But in a way, sometimes some of the differences and the difficulty with coming up with comparable definitions of some of those differences are differences that relate to the different countries and their situations. You know, more agricultural countries may need to define urban different, differently. So that creating this internationally comparable definition was tricky. On the other hand, we've now got a lot of new data. We've got this sort of data on built-up area around the world, all sorts of other data, night lights, all that sort of stuff. So we have other ways of, of identifying urban, and that's what's been tried. And a lot of people tried, basically ended up defining urban, or a number of people ended up defining it as built-up areas, big concentrations of built-up area. But on the other hand, other people have been defining as, well, concentrations of property, of people, rather, not property. And the one that's really been taking off now and being more accepted in, by international agencies has been one that's called degrees of urbanization and uses population. It's basically concentrations of, of population. And they do divide it up into different types of 
urban areas with small towns, cities, suburbs, and, and so on. And I, just to give what the basic definition is, but auto oversimplifies, urban an area is urban if each kilometer has at least three hundred people per square kilometer, or three hundred people on it, and altogether at least five thousand and something's a city or what they call an urban center if there are at least 1,500 people on every square kilometer and a total population of at least 50,000. So that's the sort of the difference. And what we've used in research when using applying this has been to focus particularly on cities because they're when you look around the world, they're much more comparable. And the small the small urban settlements are, are, are can you really compare us you know, so if you have a dense agricultural settlement in in Ghana, is that really comparable to a equivalent density in the United States? Well, not really. One is much more like a village, and one is much more, in a sense, like what you think of as urban. So, but where cities tend to tend to compare better, and. Maybe one last thing I should say that relates to this is we really would have much preferred, or I would have much preferred, in doing the research to use a definition that used population and built-up area. Because I think if you think about cities and what people mean by it, they don't use these terms, but they're thinking of a system that's sort of things that fit together, and that includes built-up and population. And I won't go into the technical details of what it means. One of the big differences in practice in terms of defining it and using it internationally is that if you use both, you will tend to get more variation between wealthy countries. Wealthy countries will be more urbanized and poorer countries less urbanized than if you just use population. So that's basically a background on what urbanization is. And there's issues that the reason we were using it relate particularly to its linked to economic growth on the one hand and and the path dependency that it creates. And since we're talking about settlement, we've been talking about looking at settlement in hazardous areas, that path dependency is, is very important, as is the economic. Okay, very clear, very clear. And so when I look at the research that I've read, there's quite often headlines in research that says that urbanization is increasing, more people are settling in these urban areas. And that's a trend that's been going on for decades, if not centuries. Why is it happening? Well, I, I mean, it's it's happened differently over time. The, the one that one tends to think back to, I mean, the first cities were, were formed millennia ago. And in a way, I guess, ever since then, there have been more and more over time. But the, the 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 latest big shift was with industrialization. Now that's not necessarily what's driving urbanization in wealthy countries today, but that was what really led to um, in, increases in urban population, and it relates to the fact that with agriculture, if people are practicing agriculture, they're basically pulled out over the arable landscape. They need to live near the agriculture. And then there's some small towns for trading, depends on the level of the economy and so on. But once you start having industrialization, putting things all in place has all sorts of benefits economically into the to the industries and then to commerce goes there too. And and you, you create these again, these systems of people and, and the things that they build that are that are close together. And there's still end up being somewhat spread out. You you do need sort of diverse locations and and so on and so forth. But the urbanization is is basically part. And and it's sort of interesting. I'd say that even if experts can't agree on what a city is, what an urban area is, which is partly because they're actually common terms, and it's not fair to, for experts to all of a sudden define them completely independently. Of the lay understanding, but um, they do agree that urbanization has been linked to an enormous economic transformation that's taken place, and that is parts of the world are still going through with moving out of agriculture into industry and then services and, and, and trade. And 
that comes along with a number of other things that again I you know it's it's basically shifted so that cities are much less dependent they're, they're dependent on the environment but they're not sort of dependent on the local location the natural geography of where they're located in and what attracts people is not as in the early cities let's say in fact those are the, the deltaic cities were some of the earliest what attracted people to concentrate in those areas was first just the 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 very productive ecosystems and then the fertile land that enabled agriculture and it was all locational things that pulled people in but now what pulls people into the city is the people and things that are already in the city and so that's a very different different dynamic and that's part of what leads to the path dependence so it's connected to the economic benefits but it also means that you know if you have a if once you have a city somewhere it tends if a successful city it attracts people and it attracts investment and so you you end up with it takes a crisis to move to move the city you you don't just so have at least you don't have a rapid pace people moving out of the city and the research also talks a lot about mega cities so these are cities with possibly tens of millions of people that live in them and that the rise of the mega city and having more of them is a big force a big trend that we see all around the world so is it then if, you, if we just take the past and we talk about the economic benefits of what's pulling people into the cities in the first place, is it a logical conclusion that the majority of people in the future will be living in what we currently term as a megacity in these kind of very, very kind of semi-closed but very large economic hubs, which in each country you may have several of them? Um, well, I would say no. I mean, I don't think the – I think that movement – <clears throat> tends to be exaggerated. There, the mega cities have really come onto the scene, and particularly in recent decades, and particularly in Asian countries, and in fact, especially in China, where the, you've had mega cities created in the periods of just a couple, few decades. But I don't think there's a. It's a. It's clear that the future is going to be ever more mega cities, I mean, even. In terms of urban, about a third of the urban population is, is not in cities at all, and I, I don't think it's I don't think it's going that far. And, and I think also, if you look to the future, it's I mean, it's it's very hard to tell. There's technological changes like the, like the um, with electronic with 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 IT. There's talk of you know the decline of the city, and that that came up actually a couple few decades ago. That's like, oh, the cities are you know they're not going to be city anymore. Everyone's going to be working from home. It's going to be very different. Um, and it didn't happen. And it's been interesting how it didn't happen because even you know if you think of cities like New York and London that are financial centers, well, they're, they're, that's where you use the you know IT technology the most. And yet that industry. Is one of face-to-face meetings, and and it's very city-centered. So, so it's 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 not a simple process of ah, oh, you get this new technology. But you, I mean, on the other hand, with the COVID pandemic, you have been getting more working at home. It's not quite clear what's going to happen, and you know, the artificial intelligence it could lead to more. But again, the prediction tip tricky. I read the other day it was t- some. Someone was writing about how you know, artif- artificial intelligence is going to make it, you s- sort of suspicious of of your relationships with people. You have to be a bit more careful whether you're really talking to the person, whether you're talking to you know the, whether the evidence the evidence based on artificial intelligence. You'll have to think about partly because it's potentially being manipulated, and it could lead to even more desire for face to face meetings and the importance of, of cities as places where you really know who you're talking to. You're not just sitting in a room somewhere with artificial intelligence on the one hand and maybe some people on the other, but you're not quite sure. But so I, I anyway I don't think I don't think one should make too much of the mega cities. It is an, obviously an issue and it's they are quite amazing, but press does get carried away with it. 
Yeah, you see that a lot. And the press got carried away as well, I suspect. I know you I know you said it was kind of uncertain, is that a lot of people were talking about the death of the big cities during COVID as well. Um, that seems like something we haven't really seen either. So, you know, I was in central London on the weekend and it was as busy as I've ever seen it. Um, now, I don't know whether those people are living in central London or whether they're still kind of moving in there to do to take advantage of the amenities. That 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 I don't know, but... It does seem that these kind of predictions just don't happen, and and the overwhelming attraction of the facilities, the economic opportunities that it gives to people, um, the leisure activities that people can do when they're in these places seems to be the most compelling draw. And any kind of major disruption that seems to come along doesn't really have that much of an effect. Well, I think that's been the case today. I mean, I I still think. You know, you, you can never be sure. A lot of these things take a lot longer than you think they would to play out, and and we have a, we have we, we have in a way a love of cities, a love hate relationship, but it's not easy to to give up. It doesn't mean that there couldn't be a time, you know, a century from now when there is a move out of cities. I, I think you have to keep on watching the space. There's always going to be the oh, the cities are dying. And you need to treat it very skeptically, but it doesn't mean you. It's one day. One day it's going to be right, just like you know, people used to always talk about China was going to stop growing and never stopped, and then all of a sudden it did. Yeah, absolutely. So the reason why I contacted you in the first place to invite you onto this podcast, beyond just talking about urbanization, was a research paper that you did that talked about low elevation deltas. Uh, and climate change and the interaction with that and urbanization, which I thought was a fascinating um, piece of research that was done. There's lots of different parts to this. So I think it probably starts with um, getting ourselves onto a level playing field of understanding and why this is important. So let's start with low elevation doubters. What is a low elevation doubter and how does it kind of connect to this urbanization discussion that we've been having so far? I guess to go back to the reason for focusing on, I mean, I, a lot of my early earlier work and with with colleagues was more on low elevation areas generally, and the concern was that um, you had sea level rise and more extreme weather events coming with climate change, and and so and and the IPCC reports, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports, have been talking about lots of people living near the coast, lots of cities being located near the coast, but they didn't have any figures. So we trying to find figures. But what research, and this isn't really ours, have found is that deltas are are particular concern. They're, they're, and they're concerned because really the, the both sides, on the one hand, they're very densely settled, a lot of property, a lot of people in these deltas, and they're growing. And then they've always been somewhat risky places with regards to floods. And then now with climate change, that's growing. So you have this confluence of two things. You have the, the what what you're worried about being hit, property and people, and the risks, both increasing in one location. So it's, in, in a way, a sort of perfect storm. Uh, sometimes it is a storm. But um, let, let, me, let me think. I mean... The key thing about a delta, the low elevation deltas, the deltas are generally the low elevation. If you think about how they're created, they're created by a river brings sediment down towards the sea. And then as it, as it reaches the sea, the flow stops, the sediment falls, spends a lot in the currents, including the ocean currents, where it goes, but it often accumulates and as it accumulates and it rises up above the land, you get this delta, sort of classic delta would probably be a fan-shaped delta. But there's lots of different forms and they move around a lot. So it's not all low elevation, but generally it's low elevation. In a way, it's created by flooding. So it's sort of inherently susceptible to flooding too. And it's always been a slightly risky place. Particularly the low elevation parts have been a slightly risky place to live. And it's not just the water coming in from the sea and the, and storms, and you have storm surges that can send, or tsunamis even worse, you know, sort of high waves that, that come in from the sea. 
but you also they're also at the base of rivers. And so the river water is coming down. The river water, if you have a storm upstream, that river water comes down. And if you also have the tides coming in, and then they combine to create a wave. It's a, it's it's an inherently somewhat risky place. And again, it's it's getting worse. And if you think of some of the disasters that you're getting with um well, I guess what maybe just to take a slight detour, if you look at the how this plays out um in terms of of disasters, and I don't think disasters are really the key thing, but they're the sort of they epitomize it in a way. If if you look at the statistics on weather, climate and water extremes that the World Meteorological Organization puts together, then it it, it plays out very differently in different parts of the world. So about in, in lower and lower middle income countries, they have about eighty over eighty percent of the deaths from these sort of disasters is in basically poorer countries. But if you look at the financial damage, as estimated basically through market prices, almost ninety percent is in the wealthy countries. So it's a just a it's a very different process and. You can sort of see that in 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 some of the disasters we've had. If you look at New Orleans and, and Hurricane Katrina, and that's the Mississippi Delta, so one of the big deltas, the biggest in the United States. Um, and you had about two thousand fatalities and uh, hundred billion dollars in damage. And the way it played out was one was you know the levees considered to have failed and. And the so water came over them or or destroyed them. You're talking about, um, I guess, an engineering disaster. Although I don't know if you, you remember R- Rory Rory Stewart when he was head of Deltas, he got in trouble because there was flooding. I can't remember what part of the country it was in, but there was serious floods, and he said, you know, well, you know, actually the the barriers. The barriers stood. They 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 worked. It was just the water went over them, and so the press sort of got them. It didn't work. If the water goes over them, it didn't work. But of course, that is there is that is, he was making a serious point. You know, they they did what they were designed to do. They weren't designed to deal with that sort of water. And in a way, that's particularly the case in what you're going to get in wealthier areas that can afford protections. Is the, protect, the protections will have to keep on changing, and you can't just indefinitely create taller barriers without incurring, starting to incur ridiculous costs. But I guess an, another example that recently is the uh, in Derna, the city in Libya, it was just a couple months ago, and you, if you looked at the photos that they had in the newspapers, you could see. I mean, it was basically. What was flattened was by the floods was the delta, the city on the on the it was a, looked like a found delta, and it caught that cost like I think ten to twenty thousand deaths. So so a lot more than New Orleans, although it didn't get it was only just a few days instead of months of, of talk. But also a very different source, and what happened was the floods came from upstream, broke the dams. And that was what caused the, the the flooding. So deltas are, you know, susceptible to these things from from various different sides. But again, I I don't think disasters are really the. That's not really the biggest way it's going to play out. The fact that you have climate change and sea level rise and and this population movement is not going to be. That's just disasters are going to be what what the press captures. But there's going to be a lot of other types of processes that affect people just as much. Sorry to interrupt. Please give me 30 seconds of your time. I want to say two things. First, you're halfway through this episode. If you're enjoying it, please follow this podcast on whatever platform you're using. It makes a huge difference. Second, lots of listeners of this podcast are research scientists. If that's you, then consider joining Frontiers Collective, the dynamic community that unites research scientists with a common purpose to achieve transformative research outcomes. 
In this private community, you'll have the opportunity to engage in thoughtful discussions, share ideas, and gain valuable insights from diverse perspectives. The Frontiers Collective serves as a platform for knowledge exchange where cutting-edge research across disciplines converge. To learn more, go to frontierscollective.com. Thank you. Back to the interview. Okay, so these doubters get created through essentially a natural a natural thing that happens from the from the rivers flooding bringing sediment down people then over time hundreds of years settle on these areas because of the natural resources uh that are available to them if they settle in these areas there's obviously over time using the urbanization discussion earlier get bigger and bigger and bigger and more important and the consequence is that today millions of people are living in these deltas which are cities that many people would know and recognize as important basis for for you know for the economy for populations for tourism and all these and all these things so and then obviously now we're seeing symptoms of climate change like extreme weather events that are causing problems that are geological in nature in a sense they are essentially these these things these areas would have got flooded if the people weren't settling there anyway because it's just the way that the natural land is is constructed so how many people roughly around the world are living in this type of environment in a delta that is at risk of these types of climate change impacts? Well, it, what, what we estimated was the number living in areas below 10 meters in elevation. So, so, that, so that's not all going to be affected by climate change and, and storms, but it's in the area where there are very significant risks and and that's about 300 million people. So that's a lot of people. That is a lot of people. It's a bit hard. It gets harder as you create a thinner strip of, of, of land, although the deltas you can measure better than normal coastal areas. So if you go down in elevation to the five-meter area, um, it's, that's less than half because the, the five-meter area is about the same size but it's somewhat less densely settled, presumably partly because it is more hazardous, and people are somewhat sens- sensible and don't, you know, you don't go to where there's, you, know, you don't try to go where there's regular flooding, and you know about that. Although building a floodplain happens all the time, including near where those of us living on the coast can see it all, see it. Um, yeah. daily thing so where are the really big deltas so so where are those um areas or those cities where where lots and lots of people are living um that, that we might recognize as areas like that yeah i mean i guess it, it used to be the urbanization you know i talked about urbanization and industrialization so that was a period when urbanization was taking place in europe and north america and that wasn't a, industrial urbanization wasn't a particularly deltaic Urbanization. I mean, there were cities on deltas, but it wasn't. A lot of them were inland, industrial. Certainly, the UK, sort of Birmingham, Manchester, these aren't anything but delta cities. And and it was so. It was, but it was those part that parts those parts of the world became much more urban. Now it's Asia that's becoming urban, and Asia looks very, very. Different. It's it, it's actually not so much the more um, quantity of deltas, but there are more deltas. And if you look across Asia, like if you look from west to east, and we're picking out big sort of capital cities, or um, I'm not sure I'll, I'll be able to think of them all, but you you have Kolkata, you have Dhaka, so Kolkata in India, Dhaka in, in Bangladesh, you have um. Yang, Yangon, you have, I'm not going to remember them all, you have Ho Chi Minh City in Hanoi, you have Bangkok, that's going back a bit, you, you have in China, you have Shanghai and Guangzhou. Um, so you have this whole set of major cities that are down from the Himalayas. Um, and so their rivers are, are bringing a lot of sediment historically. I mean, one thing, it's a detail in a way, but the deltas actually started 
not that much earlier than cities started. They're not that old as geological formations. And it was because the, the reason they started was because the, an ice age ended and the sea level stabilized. And it's been pretty much stable since about 8,000 years ago. And that's when the deltas, what deltas are the result of stable sea levels, and and then they create are created especially when it's near you know, these these large sea land masses. So that's so Asia has these deltas, and they are also tend to be particularly fertile. So you have Latin America, you have some big deltas, those are what are called deltas, but they're not the sediments. The dynamics are such that the sediment gets washed away into the ocean, and they're not that heavily populated. Whereas, whereas the Asian ones, even without any cities, were heavily populated, and now they're even more so. I mean, China's the one that, as we get to the results, I mean, that's it's just amazing what's happened there in a few decades. So, in um, so that's Asia. But if we go looking back to the industrialization of Europe and, and North America, you talked about New Orleans earlier. Are there any other kind of major cities in Europe or or America that um, also have these characteristics? Well, in Europe, um, I think about thirty percent of the del- low elevation deltaic areas, and um, I'm not sure of the exact percentage, but is in the Netherlands. So, and I mean that's known to be very low and they've worked a lot and there's a lot of people living below sea level there and that's often taken as an example of um, how actually it's amazing what you can do to protect people and it, and it is amazing you know you have floating houses virtually that go up when the but but it's not that's not the model for you know that's not the great model for Africa to say oh it's no problem to just invest 10 times in national income You'll be able to save your cities. Um, the United States has has a number of other deltas and, and a number of the cities, but it's it's it's, it's not it's not as a, it's not as extreme a, a, a problem. It actually because of all the uh, there's a, there's a big difference in terms of built up area versus population. So it's, that's part of the reason for the difference in you know deaths versus property damage. Only only a small part, but but so so the, you know this in, in the United States, I think there's about 500 square meters of built-up area per person, and that applies in deltas as well as elsewhere. So there's a lot of built-up area, and there's and so in, in the United States, you'll find there's a lot of property in deltas. There's also a fair number of people, but you move over to Africa Africa has, a, has about 50 square meters of built up area per person so and that again also extends into the delta I think it may be somewhat higher there but um, so, so you you have a lot more people there a lot more dense populations and in the United States the population delta has not been increasing rapidly at all whereas a number of other parts of the world Overall, it's been growing much. It's been growing faster than, than elsewhere, which is actually rather surprising because usually, if it's already a dense area, the percentage rates anyway are higher. I mean, I guess when we talk, if I, if I, I could summarize some of the some of the results, and that I mean that's one of the most surprising is really the extent to which. It's not. I mean, it, we expected. We went in thinking, well, these are going to be dense areas. The question is how dense. They're going to have a lot of people. The question is how many. They're going to have a lot of building, but you know, how, how much? And, and so a lot of that was trying to get just the basic statistics right in which parts of the world. And Asia came out as surprisingly big, but we already knew it was going to be big. You know? So generally, the trends were what one would expect. But actually, I... I wasn't expecting them to be growing faster than other parts of the world. I mean, my thought was, well, it'll look like they're not growing that fast because they're, again, because they're already down, so the percentage rate's going to be quite low. But actually, they globally, they are have been growing faster. They've been growing faster than 
areas that, you know, the rest of the world on average. And if you put it in terms of number of people per square, this is between 1990 and um, 2015. And if you put it in people added per square kilometer, there are massive differences. The world overall or outside of the deltas, it's been about 14 people added per square kilometer. And the deltas, I think it's something like 300 people per square kilometer. And it's particularly high in Asia. I, I need to check those exact figures, but it's just, you know, you, that's basically 300 and something people. That's almost an urban, you know, sort of low density urban, but it's, it's almost an urban average. Not, no, it's not average for urban. It's, it's an average that is, corresponds to something that would be considered a low density urban area. So we've seen, so let me just play that back. So, so we have seen, or your research has identified that a, a few things, firstly, that the rate of change of, of urbanization in these low elevation deltas is uh, significantly higher in Asia than it is in the rest of the world, although it does exist in the rest of the world. That's kind of point one. Point two is that actually when you look at the growth or of the density of the population in low elevation delta areas compared to other urbanized areas, the rate of growth in those areas is significantly higher. So we've got more people, more people ending up in these potentially higher risk places as a result of climate change, and then particularly concentrated in Asia. I played that back correctly. Yes, I mean again, the growth is particularly if you look at it in absolute terms, but it's even high, it is higher on average, and it, it, it's a, a lot of these. In a way, it's a detail, but I think it's an important one. Is is we're we're talking about things that are, um, you know, that concentrated in particular places. So, and so in every region of the world, there's usually two or three countries that have most of the low elevation deltaic area and also that applies in terms of the growth so you know so china alone between this 19 in this 1975 to 2015 period accounts for um a large share of the growth in the world not just in asia but for for the world and i think that's maybe when we get on to to what needs to be done about these things it, that was connected to their urban model it wasn't it wasn't a, it wasn't entirely just a natural process of ah yes people like deltas so that's why it happened it was because they set up special economic zones in deltas and in the coastal cities that were already there after they'd first set them up in, in fairly empty deltas so they picked these areas Precisely because they were empty, thinking, "Well, this is the, then we don't have to worry about the politics of it so much." But they gave, they created their economic model, which was very successful, and and that's an example of where the, it was successful because they worked, and I think it fed into you. Know, you wouldn't have got China's economic success, I would argue, if they hadn't developed their urban urbanization model, and that they developed experimentally they didn't know what they were doing going in it wasn't that they decided but they did something that was in a way very clever as they had different cities competing they allowed them to change the rules around and they gave great rewards for if to, to officials if they managed to create economic growth and they gave them a fair amount of flexibility and then there, were, there was all these comparisons well how did it work in this city how did it work in that city and it, it, that was what led, the fact that they designated all these areas along the coast was what, what led to a large share of the growth of deltas in the, in the last few decades. And I think, to, to put a different twist on it, I think part of the problems China is having now is that, that was, their urban model was fine for a narrow pursuit of economic growth, 
but that urbanization strategy runs out of steam economically eventually. But also, it's not it's not okay to just keep on focusing so strongly on economic growth, and they recognized that it was creating levels of inequality that were just too ex- extreme, including within the cities, between people that had the rights to live in the city and those that didn't, which was part of the way the model worked. And you, you allowed cities to have, have populations that are migrant populations that could leave if the economy went bad, so they didn't fear them. You know, the way that countries here, for example, there's this sort of fear of, of migrants. Well, cities have fears of migrants, and they dealt with that by saying, well, the migrants don't have the right to stay in your city if you don't want them. But then now that they're, they're trying to change that. But anyway, that whole changing that model proved very difficult. Bringing this back to climate change, um, I, on another episode, spoke with Professor Mark Maslin. He's a climate scientist at UCL. And I was asking him about the kind of 1.5 or 2 degree increase in temperatures and what that really meant. And actually, his answer surprised me a little bit, which was... It's not so much the absolute temperature increase that's the problem. The problem is that it's the extreme weather events get more frequent. They get more extreme and they get more frequent, which increases the average. But actually, it's the, you know, quite a lot of the time it's still normal, but then you get these kind of increased intense extreme weather situations, which clearly, as we talked about earlier, means that these these urban areas where millions of people live are at a... um, very particularly vulnerable and potentially with climate change, increasingly vulnerable as these extreme events happen. So what do, and and you've also, you've also talked about the fact that a lot of these places were developed on purpose by definition, right? They were targeted as areas because, you know, you remove the politics of having to displace people and, and all the things like, because they were essentially barren areas that just were ripe for development. So from a policymaker's perspective, what would you, if you were revising any of the governments, doesn't you can pick a country or, or, or be more general, about what to do about this, about what to do about their populations living in these urban areas that are going to be increasingly at risk of these extreme weather events? What types of advice would you be giving to, to governments that are planning um, where their population lives and where their economy um, is founded? Okay, well, I mean, I think for one thing is... That I guess the Chinese example brings up, and I don't think I mean most cities are not planned by governments, and, and governments often historically planned cities, and then it's been a bit of a failure, and that, that people don't really move to the cities and so on. But that that model of coastal cities and special zones has taken off somewhat. So the idea that you create a special zone on a, in a coastal location and and give foreign companies the opportunity to, to get around the some of the local rules there and, and negotiate rules for that special area. Um, I mean, the, an obvious recommendation, don't do that in a delta. I mean, just think, think of the future and, and if you're going to do that, do it elsewhere. This, cities don't actually, in, in terms of you know global land area, they're only um, one or two percent. And even in most coastal areas, they're not taking up all the land. They're taking up a significant amount, but you can move them. They, they don't have to be. I mean, that's the issue with path dependence. Is once you start it there, you, you you're stuck with it. And you're potentially stuck with it for a long time. And if you take so, if you take a long-term perspective, you shouldn't do do that. There are also a number of issues to do with. I mean, obviously, you need to take measures, and, and you'll increasingly need to take measures to protect these areas, and protect people in it, and, and protect pop property in it. It will almost certainly be easier to to invest in protection where there's a lot of property when the where, where there's a lot of incentive, where there's the finance available to protect property that's at risk rather than where you have very poor people and then finding the money is very difficult. But I think the sort of thing you have to watch out is there's, there's some what they call wicked 
problems. You know, problems where you, know, you do one thing and it's bad, and you do another thing and it turns out to be even worse potentially because of the unintended consequences. So, I mean, one of the things that's come out, including in in deltas, is it has been raised as the argument: well, you really need to work out where it's, you know, where there's people and property that's and people have actually used built-up areas and do that sort of estimate, and how how big the barriers you have to build to protect them. And, and I have a, a lot of concerns about that. Maybe it's partly because of what's happening right near to me in my town. But but what you see is that if, if you if you start operating that way, if you want to get money to build a barrier in most countries nowadays, you not the government's not going to just do it. You've got to do it in partnership with developers or others. And some of the money has to come from these private developers. Well, what's the deal going to be? Why is the developer going to build it? I think the answer is, well, the developer's going to build it if they then get the right to develop behind the barrier. So you you get protection in return for allowing a lot more people and property to be put in the area that's potentially at risk. And often you're putting up barriers that are fine for the moment. I mean, you know, they'll save from whatever it is that the criteria is one in 300, one in 200 floods, but that's not what it's going to be in the future. And again, if you add in the path dependence, that's a problem. So, so I, 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 I would try to make that argument that you have to take stronger steps to avoid having the government particularly picking out areas, but also not encouraging development in these areas by coming up with deals involved the private sector going in and bringing in property and people. But I mean, a lot of what needs to be done, I think it, in a lot of the world, many of the problems, I mean, there have been problems with floods in a lot of these cities for a long time, and you can sort of see the damage they're, they're, they cause. And they have a number of problems that often relate to things like the the way that land is used in, in many cities, particularly when there's low incomes. A lot of the poor residents will be living in informal settlements. Now, a lot of people tend to think of that as you know, squatters or something, but that's not generally the case. Often, these are people who bought their their land or their home very cheaply, but they don't have a formal title. Partly because they're living in an economy where getting a formal title is more they can they can afford a home, but they can't afford a title. That's you know that that process is just too expensive and the government's not going to provide it for free. So they've ended up having these big settlements that are then prone to um, problems when you have risks like flooding. And there's very, very hard to find any way of financing protection. And then the sort of things that go wrong is when then, you know, a government will come along and at least seemingly for good reason to say, well, people can't live here. This isn't this isn't okay. We'll have to take we'll have to evict these people. Well eviction is really nasty business. I mean it just if you ever watch an eviction of a low income neighbor, it's 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 scary stuff because there's so much resistance. But then you can try to compensate people. Instead, and, and that does work better. But what often happens is, sort of, you need to understand how cities work, and it's, it's an issue of really. But this type of problem, you really need to have a step change in in urban planning because the tendency is, and it's a tendency that just seems to happen time and time again is, well, these are people that are near the center of the city. That's why they picked it, and and that and even very poor people need to be in the center of the city because that sort of jobbing they do requires being near the action you get you get up and you get the job or maybe even in the middle of the night you know, you, but you're, you have to be there but they take these people and they say well we'll compensate you and then they put them way out on the edge of the city with bad transport links 
and they can't subsist that way. And there's all sorts of things like that that relate to how cities are going to have to manage this change that still haven't been worked out. And yet, I think they sh- it should be possible to work them out. It's not that, it's, you know, yes, there are interests that, you know, there are nasty developers that want to get the land, but that, 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 that's real. That really happens. And, you know, there'll be flood. People have to leave the land. And then when, what do you know, afterwards it ends up turning into a, the land is turned over to somebody else. And that's all sort of nasty, nasty stuff. But there's just also a lot of things that aren't all that difficult to do, but just are a bit more difficult to do in terms of good planning than people manage to do. And perfectly well-meaning planners and well-meaning developers end up getting it wrong. And this is going to raise the ante on that sort of thing. Bad urban planning, bad land use planning is twice as bad in this in these sort of circumstances. So we've got a I'm gonna paint a picture trying to draw together all of the points that you've made. So we've got millions of people, hundreds of millions of people already living in low elevation deltas. And that number is increasing at a faster rate than other non elevation delta areas, particularly in Asia. You at the same time have climate change, which is increasing the number of extreme weather events, of which these people that are living in these areas are particularly vulnerable. And at the same time, you have really significant challenges that governments uh, will find hard to address with protecting these populations. And actually, some of those solutions may end up making the problem worse rather than better. So if you take a um, medium-term view, uh, the way this can play out um, in different parts of the world feels quite concerning. So how how concerned should we all be about this problem in uh, either at a national level or at a global level in terms of impact on humanity, impact on the economy, impact on the well-being of population? I mean, we can pick all sorts of different dimensions about this. Well, I mean, we should definitely be concerned. I mean, I think maybe one thing to say is it is a, these sort of problems are difficult to deal with. It would be an awful lot better if we took action to mitigate climate change. That would ease up the situation an awful lot. And I think it's one of the messages in look. You know, when you when you look at the nature of this problem and you think, well. Okay, it's pretty simple, really. You just stop. Have, people should stop moving so much into the deltas and have cities elsewhere and up on the higher ground. They could be near deltas, but up in the higher ground and you invest in there. I mean, that's a fairy tale because that's not the way the world works. Governments don't decide where the cities are except under certain circumstances like that one with the Chinese, and then you can do something. And what's amazing is how much difference that actually did make the purposeful development of of the coast. But but generally, while really strong efforts should be made not to do that, I, you have to recognize that there's a, there's a there is a limit to what you can do, and it's a it is a very tricky problem, and so. Addressing climate change is up there as among the obvious solutions, partly because there's so many of these little challenges that basically bring the types of issues that we're not good at solving. Unfortunately, of course, it's turned out we're not so good at mitigating against climate change. I mean, it's basically looks like technological change is one of the better hopes and sort of a messy level of cooperation. And that's fine. We may get out of it, but largely through luck. I mean, who, who knew whether there was going to be, you know, was solar going to go down that much? Well, it wasn't obvious. Um, and it would have been better to see the world finding ways of cooperating without messing things up, but that wasn't to be. So I admit that I'm beginning to sound pretty pessimistic. 
Well, it sounds like one of those wicked problems that you were talking about earlier. Climate change is a is a potentially wicked problem, or the solutions to it, combining with urbanization and these and these doubters. I mean, you can bring it all together and create quite a concerning picture if you want to. Yes, well, there's all sorts of ways to go wrong. I mean, you, you, you could solve it, solve climate change by creating a global government. I mean, it's not going to happen. But if you did, that would would that be a problem? Absolutely. It may might be a solution, but you know, you can you can certainly imagine it going wrong. It's, it's not crazy to some people are extremely concerned with about global government, even if the fact that they're concerned about UN people landing airports in the United States. Absolutely. So, Gordon, I'm conscious that we've spent almost an hour on um, on only half of the conversation that we aim to have, and uh, I think I think that might mean that you're going to have to come on again if you want to uh, at a late at a later date. Um, so thank you so much. This has been really interesting and covered uh, what is a really important topic. I think people generally don't, and they're generally not aware of the issues that we've been talking about today. I think they're aware of urbanization as a general thing. I think they're aware, aware of climate change as a general thing. I don't think people are necessarily drawing the connection between the two and what that might mean for everybody. Um, so before we before we close the the discussion, are there any kind of final thoughts or messages that you would like to to give, or or areas that we haven't discussed that you think would be particularly useful or important to cover? Well, I can't. Th- I mean, I, we certainly there are a lot of areas we we haven't discussed, but I, I'd have to take a while to think of what what ones are the most important. I mean, I think the the general message is the one that. You described. I mean, it's a, it's a little bit like we're, you know, we're, it's a train. It's a bit of a train crash, slow motion train, very slow motion train crash with the sort of people coming in and the risks coming and they're coming together and it feels like the driver's not really paying attention very much. Not really, and maybe it's because they don't really have the controls to be able to stop. The train easily. Um, so even though, but even though I don't have any uh, any easy solutions, I think in practice, once you start looking, particularly at the local level, I mean, it's, it's this is global work. A lot of these problems demand local solutions tailored to local conditions. It's not enough to just know it's low elevation. You need to know where the flood areas are. There's an awful lot that can be done at that local level. And even though what I've been working on recently is this global data, what's really important is to get good local information and develop concerns locally and coordinate that internationally so that people can share lessons and so on. But but I think that local level, even though we've been talking global, is going to be where a lot of the solutions. Okay. Um, so I'll link to the research that we've discussed today in the show notes uh, of this podcast. Um, but beyond that, where would you um, suggest people look if they're interested in finding out more about your work or the topics we've discussed more broadly? Well, I mean, there's an awful lot of work on on deltas that's come out. It's, uh, and, and if you're interested in the physical side, that that that's, there's a lot lot there. There's also, I mean, that just in in the international literature, it's connected. It's, a lot of it's been driven by support for the IPCC, this Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So the work that's and, and which has been an important Part. I mean, it, this, it has had its problems over the years, and I even felt for a while that you know, that because of the political attacks, very politically controversial, because of the political attacks, they were getting a bit cultish in their way. But they've taken the science very seriously, and there's been a lot of good work going into that, including a lot of interesting work on on deltas. So, I mean, that's one sort of source for information that's not always the most fun to read but it's very interesting once you get beyond that thank you so much for 
taken the time to share your work, your thoughts on urbanization, on climate change, on the economy and economic development. I mean, I found it really, really interesting. The connection, I think, that people... Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. It's been it's been great. I think the connection that you're making, not many people are making, and uh, and, the, and the more people that get to understand it, uh, the better. So, Dr. Gordon McGranahan, thank you so much. Thank you again. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. To support this podcast, please follow us on whatever platform you're using. It makes a huge difference. Thank you again. Hope to see you next time.